North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Welcome to another edition of the Impossible State podcast. This is Victor Cha, Senior Vice President and Career Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Normally, I'm one of the um, uh, speakers on the podcast, but today I'm, I'm hosting because our um, host, Andrew Schwartz, is away. We're very happy to have on our podcast two of the real experts on North Korea and the situation with regard to North Korea, which is what we'll be talking about mostly today. First, our guest is Sue Kim. Sue Kim is currently a policy analyst at the RAND Corporation, as well as an instructor, adjunct instructor at American University. She's also working on her PhD at Johns Hopkins uh, University, SICE. Prior to this, she served as an analyst at the CIA for uh, seven years and also worked at the Department of Homeland Security. And so we're really happy to have her join us today to talk about the situation in North Korea. And of course, uh, also joining us is Sue Terry. Sue is a senior fellow in the Korea Chair, also an instructor at Columbia University and at Georgetown, formerly uh, on the NSC during both the George W. Bush and Obama administrations, and longtime career also at the uh, CIA, both of them working on North Korea. So we couldn't have had a better group of experts uh, to talk about the issues today. So Thanks to both of you for joining us. Let me start with Sue Kim, since we have two Sues on the program. We'll, we'll start with Sue Kim. Talk about some of the recent developments that, that we've seen reported in the news, the earliest of which is the resumption of what it looks like contacts between the two Koreas, the uh, reestablishing of a communication channel between the two Koreas, which the South Korean government was so excited about that it actually went out and made a public official announcement about it. And so I guess the first question to you, Sue Kim, is what do you think of this? Were you surprised by it? Where do you think it will lead? So I guess the the main question that I had last week when we heard about this news is, is why now? Uh, because we haven't really seen any developments or atmospherics leading up to really a justification for this. So understanding how North Korea operates, um, it, it doesn't really... You know, sometimes it doesn't really go according to plans or patterns. So in that respect, I think it was predictable, but I think it was unpredictable. And in, in, in the way that um, there was really nothing that really justified resumption of the, the hotlines being, you know, being restored. The other question I had, and I think we'll probably get into this in the conversation, is um, they, they called for a virtual summit. And again, the question that I had was, well, why now? And why is this justified? Because there's no really no urgency, I, I would think, from either the, the North Korean or the South Korean perspective, because we're not really 
moving forward on the nuclear issue, which has been you know, kind of stalemated for the past couple of years. But we've also seen indications from North Korea that it wasn't really looking forward to any kind of engagement with the South. So a lot of questions kind of came up to my mind. And I think um, the South Korean responses were overly excited about something that um, I wouldn't say was routine, but I think it, it's something that is expected from North Korea, where they close the lines when they don't want to talk to you, and then they, they, they don't open it back up, but they sort of nudge you in the direction so that you do. And then they extract what they want and then they go back into their closure and you know we're back to square one. So I wouldn't say that this is as optimistic as, you know I know that some other people are, are quite rosy about this, but I think all in all, um, realistically, it's, it's not something that's really out of the ordinary for North Korea. Thank you, Sue Kim. Sue Terry, do you think that this is about South Korea or is it about the United States? What do you think is driving all of this from a North Korean perspective? Yeah, so I, I agree with Sue in the sense that what was surprising is timing. To me, South Korea part is not surprising at all because President Moon actually has very limited time. He, the South Koreans have been dying to make some sort of a breakthrough with North Korea. He has seven months left in office. So we understand why South Korea is doing this. Uh, but I expected for North Korea to extend an early branch, but timing-wise, I thought they would do it maybe beginning of next year, Victor. I mean, you, you've heard me say this before. I thought they will time it with Winter Olympics in Beijing just before the presidential election. So I agree with Sue. What was slightly surprising is the timing of why now. And I think there's multiple things that we can talk about because we can talk about is a severe food crisis that North Korea is going through. There's this economic uncertainty that we know that they just they are going through a hard time. We know that North Koreans have been going through, have they have COVID concerns and vaccine crisis. So is that these kind of domestic reasons that's driving it? Or is it that they want to influence election politics in South Korea because they've been watching what's going on in South Korea and they, they don't like it, frankly. It probably is a combination of these factors, but it's still interesting to me. And what's also interesting is like the, the kind of, you know, what Kim Yo-jong has been saying about the exercises. There are so, you know, the joint, U.S. rock joint exercises are coming up. So are they going to make a big deal out of that? Because that's going to be an excuse if they end up killing the talks because of the joint exercises. That's, you know, they know this is coming. It's going to be scaled down anyway, mostly virtual, limited kind of thing. So to me, joint exercise is always an excuse. So we'll soon see what the North Koreans' actual intention is. But I don't know. I, I don't know if it's domestic, the, the economic uncertainties that's driving this, or is it mostly just trying to like meddle with the South Korean election politics? They know they're not going to get anything out of Washington right now in terms of sanctions relief or anything. So, you know, I, I'm curious to see what Sue thinks about this. So there's a lot to unpack there, and we can talk about each of those topics. But can I uh, go back to the question of South Korea? Clearly, the, the government in South Korea is very happy with this breakthrough, right, in close quotations. But what, what do you think they want out of it? Like you said, Sue, they have a few months left in a single five-year term. If a Moon Kim virtual summit happens, like, what are they looking for to come out of this? One, I think from Moon's perspective, he probably, in the short term, before he leaves office, he wants something to, to speak for his efforts, um, all of his hard-earned efforts, 
the stomachery, the, the calling himself the, the mediator or the intermediary between the United States and, and North Korea. That's, that's a short term window that he's looking at. But I think if he wants to pass the baton on to somebody from his party or his camp for the next election, then this is a way for the, the South Korean government to, to keep up the momentum. I do agree with Sue in that um, with, with North Korea's you know, recent actions, it's, it's hard to say whether or not, you know, which, which way they're trying to steer. But I do agree that it's not necessarily this time geared towards Washington. I think they have a bigger interest in, in trying to influence South Korea. And I think from that angle, they could still influence the USROK alliance as well. So I think the mistake or maybe the, the comfort zone that we kind of fall into when we look at North Korea is that we try to look at everything from like the US-centric perspective, which is right, right for, uh, for sure. But in this case, I think um, North Korea might be looking at this from a longer term horizon where they know that the South Korean government, the Moon administration is, you know, frankly, really desperate <laughs> to get something out, um, whatever it is. They want something to say that, you know, all four or five years that we've kind of invested into North Korea, there's something to, to kind of show for our efforts. So there's that. But then there's also the longer term perspective where if there is a pulse in South Korea for, you know, a change in tones and tides between the two Koreas, this might be the right opportunity. And this might be a time when, Moon can sort of pass it on to whoever seems to be in the most, I guess, appropriate position um, in terms of politics. But also, I think this is a little bit tangential, but looking at how the fate of most South Korean former presidents end up not so well, he might also be thinking about, well, if I were to get, if we were to see a president from the opposite camp, then there's going to be even more flashback back onto me. So, you know, in, in all calculations, I think from the, the South Korean perspective, there's much more to sort of hang their necks on this time, as opposed to, you know, four years ago when things were a little bit more stable and they probably felt like they had much more things under control. So for now, they're going to have a virtual summit because apparently North Koreans, they are all equipped to have this virtual summit. So if you think about it, if they have a virtual summit sometime in the fall, but then that paves the way for an actual in-person summit, let's say, on the sidelines of the Beijing Olympics. This happened to be right before the presidential election in South Korea. That works well for South Korea. I mean, that makes sense from President Moon's perspective. And from the North Korean perspective, in terms of influencing elections, I mean, look, right now, you know, you the two front runners are Yoon Seok-yeol from the opposition party, tied with Lee Jae-myung. Or, and, and so, you know, from the North Korean perspective, you know, the ruling party already lost mayoral elections in Seoul and Busan, they have an incentive to help out the Moon administration standing right now to influence the election. So I think that has, this has to be a big part of North Korea reaching out to South Korea at this point. So you think that the, the goal or the play for the Moon government is do this virtual summit, leading eventually to some sort of in-person meeting that could happen at the Beijing Olympics opening ceremony. And so that's sort of Moon's legacy. You know, that'll help the ruling party candidate going into the election. So then this really becomes solely an inter-Korean thing. This isn't so much about the United States. It's really focused much more on the inter-Korean piece, except that part of the timing of this might be to try to influence the, uh, the exercising, right? So maybe we should talk a little bit about that. What have you heard in terms of what the joint exercises will look like for the the fall? And do you think it'll be a problem if the exercises go forward in a manner that is, I don't know, again, in, in quotation marks, provocative to North Korea? So the South Korea's 
NIST director very recently came out and said that, you know, they, they shouldn't be holding the exercises or he wanted to scale it back. And he said that, you know, if they were to hold it, it's, it's going to provoke North Korea. And I thought it was really interesting because, I mean, we expect somebody from the mood camp to say something like that. But then we also, in some ways, I think it was giving North Korea the pretext to provoke or to, to say that, you know, things are not going well because we warned the South Koreans, we warned the United States via the South Koreans not to hold these exercises, but they did. So that means that North Korea can justify its current behavior as well as, you know, any excuses for missile tests and, and so forth. But I think the way that the South Koreans have been so eager to sort of, for lack of a better expression, they're basically dancing to whatever beat the North Koreans are, are trying to, to give so quickly and as if they were waiting for the opportunity to sort of come and, and defend and justify inter-Korean reconciliation at the expense of their own security and at the expense of their alliance with the United States. So that was interesting. Um, the way I think the exercises are going to go is, of course, they have this really nice pretext called COVID-19. And, um, you know, we're calling back from the, the, the Moon-Biden summit back in May or June. The United States gave the South Koreans, or I guess the USFK staff, X number of vaccines for, for COVID-19. And a lot of the South Korean pundits saw this as Washington really taking away any excuses that Seoul is going to give about not wanting to hold these exercises in person. But the consistent argument or the justification that we're seeing from the Blue House and elsewhere is that um, they're, they're concerned about COVID-19. And in the interest of safety and health, they're going to try to scale it back or you know, go do these computer simulation exercises. This is great for North Korea because we're seeing South Korea basically cower to maybe not even direct pressure, but I think the fact that they're aware that the North Koreans are very conscious of it is enough, I think, for especially this administration to, to be very sensitive and to, to be hesitant to really ruffle any feathers in, in Pyongyang. So uh, the way I see it, I think where we're seeing a lot of this argument and, and this momentum being built up to justify scaling down, or I think even a postponement of the exercises. So that's the direction I think that Seoul is trying to steer. Now, the question is, is, is Washington going to be okay with it? And from, I guess, from, from Seoul's perspective, depending on who you talk to, of course, but they seem to think that this is gonna be something that we're gonna be okay with. But I think um, the recent statements that we saw from, I think the, the Indo-PACOM commander was they're, they're emphasizing you know, alliance readiness as being you know, critical and important to working on the nuclear issue and also engage with North Korea. So we're still seeing, I think, Seoul and Washington sort of butting heads, um, not just on the specific exercise issue, but over just the future direction of the alliance as well. So I don't understand why NIS director came out and said we should postpone the U.S. rock joint exercises, because they should just have stuck with COVID as a main excuse. But right after Kim Yo-jong makes her statement, like an IS director comes out and says, oh, let's postpone it. I just don't see that as smart. Just stick with COVID as an excuse. They have a good reason. They can say, oh, despite the vaccines, the number of COVID cases continue to climb among both the ROC military and USFK forces. There's this new Delta Plus variant. So they could have just stuck with, oh, we would really love to hold these exercises, but there's this COVID case. It's going to be scaled down anyway. It's going to be mostly, you know, uh, virtual like before. So I just 
thought that was really interesting that they showed their hands by just jumping at the chance, saying, oh, let's postpone these exercises. Well, could you imagine the CIA director sort of making a statement saying, yeah, I don't think the, you know, we should hold these exercises. There's that, too. There's a little stepping out of the lane there. But I guess we see that. We see that every now and then on the South Korean side. So can I, let me just before we get to sort of questions of North Korea, their internal situation, the leadership, your the discussion thus far has raised another interesting point for our listeners, which is, you know, the May 21 Biden moon summit went really well. I mean, I think everybody agrees it was a success. But, you know, you've talked to people around town and while the um, on the surface it's all about rejuvenating the alliance. It's in much better shape than than two years ago. The last four years were horrible, so on and so forth. And May 21 is really the start of a, a return. The alliance, remember the front page of every South Korean newspaper had something to that effect, you know, relief, a sigh of relief or return to normal, these sorts of things. But if you scratch beneath the surface, there's tension there. And unsurprisingly, it's on issues we're both familiar with, which is North Korea policy and OPCON transition. So for me, one of the questions here has always been, on the one hand, there's an effort to try to move OPCON forward before the end of the moon government. Not likely to happen, but still, they're still uh, talking that talk. On the other hand, they're also trying to minimize exercises and readiness and things that would sort of help the transition in terms of meeting all the right thresholds for OPCON transition. So I guess, so the question I think is, I mean, how much do you think that the alliance is like everything's fine and back to normal? Or how much of this uh, tension in the relationship is going to start coming to the surface? Well, I do think North Korea was always going to be that tension. And that's why even in the joint statement, they didn't really focus on North Korea. There's this like 200 some words dedicated to North Korea. They were talking about all these other cooperation on technology and everything else, but not on North Korea, because on North Korea, they're not exactly on the same page. And this is why ultimately, I do think there is a risk to this uh, for the Moon administration. I think they are kind of overjoyed right now, but I do think there is a risk. And it's beyond the exercises. I think ultimately for North Korea to be happy with the Moon administration, you have to remember they've been very unhappy, right? They, they were not talking to each other for a reason, because even after all the, you know, Panmunjom declaration and whatnot, South Korean couldn't really deliver to North Korea what they wanted. And they can't because of sanctions and whatnot. So I do think there is a risk that the Moon administration either delivers things to North Korea, which will be in violation of sanctions, let's say opening Kaesong or whatever else that North Koreans want, or they don't and they risk triggering North Korea again. So I do think there is a risk element here. And then you're right about OPCON transfer. I mean, how, how can we go there when it's conditions-based and we're not having these exercises or they're so scaled down and you're not ready? So anyway, my, my one point here is that I do think there is a risk about with this inter-Korea relations that the Buddha administration is sort of stuck. And the underlying tension between Seoul and Washington has always been about North Korea being on the same page. I do agree with, with everything that Sue said. I guess one thing I'm trying to wrap my head around is I agree that North Korea is always going to be a source of contention between Seoul and Washington. I guess I read the, the Biden moon summit takeaways a little bit differently. I, I do think that it was a, a vast improvement from past four years um, and that we sort of dodged a big bullet, but I do think that there are still several areas that Seoul and Washington still need to work out. 
One thing I remember, um, and this is, again, it's not specific to North Korea, but, but one of the journalists had asked President Moon whether or not the United States had pressured South Korea on, on the Taiwan issue. And the U.S. president's response, I think, was very telling in that he was kind of joking and he, he, he looked at Moon and he just kind of nudged at him and he said, good luck. And when Moon was actually going to answer the question, he didn't really take it in, in a very casual, confident way, but he basically just parroted and he said that, um, no, there was no pressure. But there, I think you see that there's there's still some discomfort uh, between Washington and Seoul when it comes to not just the North Korea issue, but on, on matters, you know, for instance, U.S.-China competition and, and Seoul's, I guess, hesitation to really take either side and, you know, for right reasons, of course, but Bottom line, I think that where the United States-South Korea alliance is, is much better than before. But again, um, there are going to be issues that they need to work out together. And it's kind of a mismatch of timing where we're getting a new U.S. administration and then we're seeing the tail end of a South Korean administration. So it seems like the stars aren't really aligning um, either way for, for Moon. Yeah. And then the only thing I will add before we move on uh, to the next topic is that I mean, I think it. I think there's a learning process going on for the Biden administration in many ways, because if you think about it, you know, a lot of the personnel are the same personnel, right? People we all know working on these issues. But arguably, this is really the first time that this group of people have had to deal with a hard progressive government in South Korea. They really have never had to deal with that because during both terms of Obama, they didn't really have to deal with that. They had MB Lee and they had Park Geun-hye. When we were in government, we had No Mu-hyun, right? We had five years of No Mu-hyun. And I remember the Obama administration officials would come in and they go, you know, this is great. You know, the U.S. I think the phrase was the best it's ever been was the phrase that they used. And I would be like, yeah, but you don't know. Like, <laughs> It's a little bit different when you're dealing with a different type of government. And so I think there's also a bit of a learning process for the Biden folks, because this is not the same government that they dealt with when they were here four years ago. So there's that element too. Okay, um, let's let's move to a discussion of sort of the internal situation in North Korea. It's come up several times in answers in the, in the discussion with regard to food, COVID, and then also the health of the leadership. So can we first start with the food situation? And I know these things are, particularly the first two are, are interlinked, but what have you been hearing about the overall food situation in North Korea? And to what extent is that driving some of this interest in inter-Korean engagement? I guess food aid could be considered part of the humanitarian carve-out, right, within sanctions. So you know, um, so what do you think the situation is? And do you think this is part of, you know, one of the one of the things that are that are driving the North Koreans in this direction right now? Yeah, I mean, it's bad, right? I, all the reports that we are that's out there says, you know, North Korea's economy with trade with China dropped to a, about a fifth of normal levels, right? Ongoing food shortage crisis. Now there's reports about failed attempt to start public distribution system for food. NIS also reported that North Korea has released emergency military rice reserves, severe heat, drought, which wiped out rice, corn, crops, killed livestock. I mean, so we're getting all these reports, high prices for basic staples. And then there's no respite from this because they close the border. And even though there is a little bit of movement here and there, they still don't have vaccines. So they, the border lockdown has to continue. We know Kim Jong-un is super paranoid about COVID. So there's no question that their domestic situation is bad. And yes, South Korea is going to deliver humanitarian aid. And they have already announced it. The Moon administration has already announced it. 
But is this the main reason for North Korea's outreach? South Korea has already said they were going to give humanitarian aid. So I'm just not sure if this is actually what's really driving it. But there's no doubt it's very bad, the situation in terms of food crisis and whatnot. But I, I, I don't know if this is the reason that's driving North Korea in terms of extending olive branch to South Korea right now. So same question to Sue Kim. And then also, Sue Kim, do you think that the Moon government will, you know, suppose there is a virtual summit that takes place, there's got to be some deliverable out of that summit meeting, otherwise they'll be criticized for just doing window dressing. And, and Moon government has kind of already said they wanted to do this. One of the deliverables out of this could be vaccines, vaccine delivery to, to North Korea. North Korea or Kim Jong-un has signaled and explicitly stated that things were bad. So we know that it's bad. He mentioned that the, the situation is tense. He, he told people to prepare for an arduous march. So he's been giving all these indicators. And then we're also seeing signs of Kim's quote unquote health kind of faltering, which I'm sure it's tangential, but um, it could be related. So th- I guess the next logical question we would have is, well, then if, if the situation is so bad, then why isn't the leadership doing anything about it? And the leadership is doing something about it. And we, we, we did see the South Koreans speaking on behalf of North Korea and saying that um, they wanted sanctions relief, basically. The export of, of minerals and the import of, of refined fuel, all of those limitations they wanted for us to lift it. And then finally, the last punch is um, they, they wanted daily essentials, basically. And, and they mentioned um, the fine suits and, and the liquor. And you're thinking, if the situation is so bad where the people are suffering and the leader truly cares about this and he wants to do something about it, this is not something that he should be asking for. So I do recognize that things are bad for the population, but I don't think it's it's registered or it's ever going to register for Kim Jong-un to the point where he's going to want to do anything about it, which I guess kind of ties into what Sue said about there's got to be something else that North Korea is kind of looking for to reach out to the South Koreans because it's not about um, the humanitarian aid that they're looking for. So probably something else. And in terms of what the South Koreans can actually give to North Korea, Vaccines could be one, of course, and and Seoul has even offered, I think, some NGOs or or private organizations upwards of like $8 million to to help the North Koreans. So there's going to be, I think, money going in. Now, the question is like, how is that money going to be going inside North Korea um, when they have to think about sanctions? And and also, if they were really concerned about alliance coordination, even though it's a Korea to Korea matter, they're going to want to make sure that their most important ally, the United States, is going to be on board. And hopefully nothing that they do is going to raise any eyebrows here in the United States. Do you think that it would be, I mean, given the sort of relatively slow COVID vaccination rate in the South, do you think any announcement coming out of a virtual summit about vaccines to North Korea would be, Would I mean, you know, they're in election year, right? And they're preparing for, you know, they want their can. I mean, do you think that would go over well in South Korea? No, I mean, I don't because <laughs> we're seeing numbers where, um, and you have to question when, again, going back to the, the summit back in May, they were very excited about not just the number of vaccines that the United States was going to donate to, to South Korea, but the, the vaccine partnership was seen as this beacon of hope for South Koreans who were waiting for the vaccines. When we heard about the resumption of the inter-Korean hotline, the question I got from people in Seoul was, not the question, but the comment that, that I got was that he doesn't seem to care about anything but North Korea. 
So I could see that if they were to make an announcement, this is not going to go so well for the Moon administration. But again, we, we've also seen the Moon administration make announcements about North Korea still during COVID and this pandemic. Um, it doesn't seem like people are kind of reacting as much as they should be. We're seeing opposition party members criticize, but I, I still think that there's not enough of a pushback from the the, um, the the conservatives or the the you know the non-moon entities so strong enough that it's going to push moon or push him to sort of have this like kind of a check or like a restraint where the, he is more aware about how the domestic population is going to be perceiving of these these extends these extensions and overtures to North Korea. And he could always push it as something that's like humanitarian efforts. Um, it, we're seeing that from you know his, his advisors. We're seeing um, the, the NIST director. We're seeing the unification minister, and all of these um, politicians also sort of coming out and sort of supporting and you know giving the basis and justification for South Korea North Korea engagement. So definitely not going to be flying well, I think, in the South Korean public. But again, they could sort of pitch it and sort of package it in such a way that it, it's not as hard on the public as, as it could be. Well, I think the Korean, South Korean public needs to be mostly vaccinated first, because if they have, they're not, then they're going to, there's already a criticism of the slow rollout in terms of vaccines. Like, okay, fine, the Moon administration handled initial COVID epidemic well, but then vaccination was very slow. So you can't have the South Korean public not largely vaccinated and then offer it to North Korea. So I don't think that's, that's going to play too well. Yeah. So most likely it'll be something like, you know, promise to provide these vaccines later in the year after, you know, they reach the target in November, which then sets up, well, at least for the elite to open for something, some meeting in Beijing, right, in March of 2022, maybe, maybe that's sort of the, the path that they're looking for. But um, interesting. So let's move to the last point, which is the leader, and these recent photos of him with some sort of something going on with the back of his neck. And I know we're all kind of speculating here, but anybody have any guesses or have any dermatologist friends or other types of doctors who can diagnose what it is we're seeing on the back of his head? So if it's just something back of his head and that's the first thing and the only thing, you know, that's one thing. I think the issue is that this is coming on the heels of, we still for several years now in the past few years, we still don't know why he had these prolonged absences. We, remember, it wasn't already 28, a couple of years ago when we all thought like something happened to him. We still don't know what happened when he disappeared for big chunks of time. Then when he came out of these absences, he rode around in cars, golf carts. There were pictures of that. Then everybody focused on some sort of unexplained mark on his wrist. Then we have this really pre-traumatic weight loss. We still don't know why he's on this severe diet. I mean, I would like to be on that. Like, what, what, what's, what's happening there? We still don't know. Um, and then he showed up with this large green spot on the back of his head, neck, and then big bandage. So cumulatively, all of these things are concerning. And in general, before we had his uh, disappearances and appearances, Kim's health has always been the most important wild card when we're assessing uh, stability in North Korea. It just, it just is. Just the way the structure of the, the system, it's if something were to ha something to happen to Kim, this is the biggest wildcard event. Um, so if there's a ma major health event, we know there's no successor lined up. It's something that we need to watch out for. I don't think I think we are all guessing to say exactly how healthy unhealthy is. 
but we know something is going on and this is a major wild card. We, we tend to sort of make assumptions when it comes to North Korea at large, but I think we do that, especially when it comes to the leader's health. And maybe it's because we don't know so much that we just sort of take what we see as, as maybe not the basis of truth, but we just kind of accept it and we just sort of you know, make our, make our decisions based on that assumption. But one thing that I did question continually is, 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 you know, what is actually going on with Kim Jong-un? And it was, it's interesting to me that the North Koreans chose to sort of publicize these health developments. Of course, they can't hide every, you know, negative development when it comes to leaders' health, but the fact that they're becoming rather public about it and the fact that they're, you know, even saying it in the propaganda that the, the North Korean population is so concerned about the leader's emaciated state, you have to wonder why they're doing it and whether or not there is something serious that's going on with the leader's health. Succession, of course, is an issue, but I think, you know, more importantly, I think is the question about what is Kim Jong-un up to? And, and, and really, we know that we've been told that it was Kim Jong-un who basically ordered the, the resumption of the hotlines. But we haven't really seen or heard Kim Jong-un in action. So we're seeing speeches, we're seeing statements being put out by his sister, um, the, the, the press. But it's it, there's there's still something that seems amiss to me, um, whether or not you know he's he's doing okay, whether the weight loss is because he was going on a diet or because there was something more grave. He was gone for two weeks uh, in July, and then recently he popped up, and we're seeing this this bandage on the back of his head. So, and then you have to wonder if by publicizing these photos, which they know that people like ourselves are going to be looking at, maybe there is something that they want us to see. Maybe they want us to focus on the health for whatever reason, and that reason I think is is still kind of an enigma to us. And it's it's um, again we're we're kind of focusing, I think, on the assumptions that we make. We're making our judgments based on the assumptions that we built. So all in all, I think when it comes to the leader's health, there's just a lot of complicating factors that we have to think about that might not necessarily get calculated in when we're actually analyzing not just his health, but I think the overall state of the country. So, so what do you make of this? Uh, you know, the North just recently created this first secretary position directly below Kim Jong-un, right? It's sort of like a... Is it like a vice president, if you will? This North Korean official, Cho Young-won. So that's kind of interesting. So what do you make of that? Like, because some people interpret that as this person can step up in Kim's absence. And some other people say, no, that you, you just can't because, you know, that. But it's interesting that they have this kind of, they created this position too, if you have any thoughts on that. So the first question that popped up when you asked me this question is, um, would North Korea, the leadership, be okay with somebody who's not a Kim family member to, to sort of step up and be the number two? I think that kind of draws a big question mark. And then the other, I guess, the underlying, maybe I'm probably making this assumption too, but any positions, titles that North Korea kind of switches, they kind of like to, you know, put up down once in a while and, and try to, you know, shake down somebody and then you'll see them gone and then they'll come back. To me, I think as long as we have a Kim Jong-un or a Kim family member in place, these leadership shuffles and reshuffles, they sort of signify like, I guess, the, his mood of the day or his mood of the month or whatever. So he's not pleased with somebody. He's not pleased with his own leadership failure. So he takes it out on other people. 
But I think ultimately it doesn't change the fact that the country is being controlled by one person and one family. This creation of a new post, some say that it was because he wanted to, I think, delegate more um, you know, responsibilities. That could be why. But then again, if there are health concerns, if there are questions about succession, whoever is going to be in this number two position, where it is right now, we can see this person carrying out some of the responsibilities, but I don't think that they're going to be, I mean, I don't think they're going to aspire to, to want to be the next Kim Jong-un, but I also think that um, there's going to be like a ceiling put on them where that, that's it, that's that's all they're going to do. And ultimately, whoever is going to be successor is going to have to take over the reins. But again, for me, I think I tend to be a little bit more cautious in interpreting creations of titles and demotions and promotions because, you know, it, it can change any, at any moment. And it really depends on what Kim Jong-un feels like and, and, you know, what he wants to do in terms of steering his country. Yeah, I don't know. In a system like North Korea's where it's all about the leader, it'd be kind of a scary place to be number two. You'd have a big target on your back all the time. Sorry, so that's my dog barking in the background, which means it's time to end this podcast. I want to thank Sue Kim and Sue Terry for a really interesting and insightful discussion about what's going on with the recent developments on the Korean Peninsula, inter-Korean relations exercises, and the internal situation in North Korea. Again, I don't think we could have pulled together a better group for this. I hope we'll be able to continue the discussion as we see events unfold. And with that, I want to thank our guests. I want to thank our listeners. We'll see you on the next edition of The Impossible State. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.